Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, 1 to 6. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in the place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God of a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levi stood Jeshua, Benai, Kedmiel, Shabaniah, Benai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Canaanai. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levi, Jeshua, Kedmiel, Benai, Heshabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Padahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and a host of heaven worships you. The second passage comes from 32 to 37 of the same chapter. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenants and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all our people, since the time the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in order all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and the fathers have not kept the law or paid attention to the commandment and your warning that you gave them, even their tongue, even their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you have gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves in this day, in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich use goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. This is the word of the law. Amen. Thanks, Edmund. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you that as we come to you, Lord, you meet us first. We thank you, Lord, that even today, as we were thinking about our day ahead, thinking about coming to church, going through all of our um, daily rituals, thinking about struggles, worries, whatever we faced this week and this day, we know, Lord, that you brought us here for a reason. That you have us here because you want us to praise you. You know that we were created to praise you, to be with you. Lord, you know that it is good for us to be together in the community of saints, to learn from one another, even to rub each other the wrong way at times. So we have to learn grace. We have to learn to give it. We have to learn to forgive. We have to learn to love. We thank you, Lord, that we've been brought in this place because your spirit is moving us here 
even if we feel dry, even if we feel like we gain nothing at church, even though we feel like we wonder why we're even here, we know your spirit is working. We trust it because when two or three are gathered, you are there as well. You promise that in the scripture. So as we continue to worship you by studying your word, help us to be attentive to it. Help us to be attentive to what you might say through your living word, through your Holy Spirit. Even though the story that we're reading happened thousands of years ago, help us to learn from them and to inspire us through your word that is living and has been living for 3,000 years since this was written before. So Lord God, we come to you trusting that you're working and we thank you for your work. We give you all the praise and glory in your son's name we pray. Amen. So this week in our passage, we continue this journey that uh, the people of Nehemiah's time in Israel took as they studied and they reflected upon the scripture. Last week we studied about how this journey unfolded. We read in chapter 8 how after the walls of Jerusalem were completed... The people gathered to kind of rededicate their city. They wanted to have kind of a a big celebration to kind of rededicate this new city of Jerusalem that they can now call home that is safe with the walls in place. Yet we read that the people of Jerusalem, they didn't want to have a big party. They didn't want to have speakers and pomp and circumstance. What they wanted to do is read the scriptures. They wanted to read the Torah, which is the first five books of our Bible. And so they asked Ezra, the prophet, to read the book, to read the Torah. And Ezra spent six hours reading it. They all, thousands of them were gathered for six hours to read the scriptures. And then they gathered in small groups to talk about the scriptures and to have kind of Bible studies about it. And through that journey, we read last week about kind of this journey that God took them as they studied the scriptures. We talk about how it firstly exposed their sin. As they reflected upon the scriptures, we read last week that the people of of Israel started crying and mourning. So much so that the leaders were kind of concerned about what's going on here. But they were mourning and weeping because of their sin. Their sin and their people's sins from the past and the present had been exposed. And so they mourned and wept like someone had died because of it. But we read also that they went from mourning to joy because they, were, they remembered God's forgiveness that comes in the midst of sin. They remembered the day of atonement that will be coming so soon after that celebration they celebrated. And how God forgives freely. He forgives not. He doesn't give forgiveness kind of at the same standard of sin. He gives it freely regardless. And so they were led to joy. In God's goodness and grace. And then that led them out to praxis. To, to uh, practically responding to God. And we read in the scripture that they did this by firstly reflecting upon God's word. They, they actually set up tents called booths uh, during the celebration to remember how God worked when they were slaves in Egypt and then out in the wilderness. And then after that they went out and they shared the word to all people in Jerusalem about God's hope and love. And they also followed God's word in Deuteronomy and gave to the poor and cared about the alien and the foreigner and the widow 
as God commands in his word. So we see that as we studied their journey through the scriptures, we also see that this is our journey as well. We studied that last week about how in our lives we are called, when we come to the holiness of God and the greatness of God, our sin is exposed. When we read the scriptures, we realize that we are not following God as we should, that we're not living in the way that we should, that there's also much more that we could be doing. But then we're drawn to joy, the joy of Jesus Christ, who has come to carry the weight of our sins on his shoulders. The Day of Atonement not happening once, but through Jesus Christ happening for all people at all time. And then that joy leads us to praxis, to loving our neighbors as ourselves, to sharing the word of God and reflecting on his word in our life. So we talked about that journey last week and how that is ongoing. That continues to happen in our life. We are drawn from sin to joy to praxis and then back to sin and then back to joy, back to praxis. As we are working for God, our sin's exposed again and then joy and praxis and over and over again, it happens this way. But now we see in chapter 9 that the people of God have gone back to the first step. That the people in Jerusalem had some unfinished business with God and concerning their sin. So we read in our passage that on the 24th day, of the same month, which would have been two days after the celebration ended, that the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting on ashes uh, on their heads. And we'll talk about what that means later. But what's important to see here is that the whole people, it said every Israelite in Jerusalem gathered here. They put on rough cloth and they put dust on their heads. And they did that to confess their sins. It was that important for them that their sins were acknowledged. They wept for their sins. They mourned their sins. But then they took this special time to confess sins. So here, so we learn here about the importance of confession in our life. Why it's important for us to confess sins to God. Now, so far in Nehemiah, we've talked a lot about repentance. Repentance is a theme that we see throughout the narrative of the story of Nehemiah. And we've spoken before about how important repentance is to our life with God. But we haven't spoken a lot about confession. Repentance has to do with turning from sin. But confession has to do with naming your sin. Just naming it. Saying what it specifically is. And we can see how these two things go together. I mean, you can't have repentance without confession. You wouldn't know what you're repenting of if you don't name those sins specifically. And confession without repentance is just shallow. It doesn't really mean anything unless you take a step forward to turn from your sin. But especially when we look at confession, confession is one of those things that is really hard for us to do. It is difficult to do. We don't do it partly because it is so hard. Often we want to forget. You know, sometimes like during our week, the big sins, the top, you know, the top five, those get a confession for us. But often the smaller sins, just our attitudes, our motivations towards others, small actions, you know, small ways we've not loved. Like we confess sins of omission, things we didn't do, sins of commission that we did do. Those things are easy to forget. I was thinking about this uh, last week because 
uh, Eben, my son, uh, we had kind of worked with him on something that he had gotten in trouble for. You know, as happens with kids, he got in trouble. And what we try to do is after everything calms down is to try to talk to him about it and have a conversation. And I think he's dreading the word conversation now because I'm like, Eben, we have to have a conversation. He's like, no, I don't want to have one. Uh, but uh, we had a conversation about this one thing he did. And I asked him, so what do you think you did wrong? And he said, I can't remember. I can't remember, Daddy. I'm like, it happened like an hour ago. You know, it wasn't like last week. So, so I asked him like five different ways. Like, okay, so maybe what could have happened here? I can't remember, Daddy. I just can't remember. And after reflecting upon that and kind of thinking about it, I thought, well, okay. He might literally not remember. I mean, he's got a lot on his mind. He's a little kid. And, you know, there's a lot going on up there. So he could literally not remember what happened. That's an option. Or he could be choosing not to remember. (laughs) He could intentionally not want to remember what happened because it's embarrassing. It's frustrating. You know, he doesn't like to be called out like none of us do. And when we think about our sin, often I think we also have those two tendencies. You know... Think about it like sometimes we come to a time of confession in church like we just did 20 minutes ago. And, you know, I may ask you, let us now confess our sins. And I know for me, and I've talked with many of you about this through the years, that when that time happens, sometimes it's just hard to know what to say. Like, oh God, I can't remember what happened during the week. Oh, work, family, sleep. You know, it's like hard to remember, like what, how did I sin? You know, the big sins are easy to remember. Yes, that one for sure, God. I remember that one. But the little ones, the daily ones, just the small ways that we did not love God and we did not love our neighbor, they often kind of go in and out. Sin has a way of hiding itself in our life. It has a way of concealing itself. So those things are hard for us to remember. But there are also ways that we choose not to remember our sin. And if you're like anything like me, that's kind of what the bigger issue is, is just choosing not to remember. Because sin accentuates our weakness. It accentuates that you are not good enough to receive by your own holiness God's love and his righteousness and blessing. It reminds us that we have need, that we need God, that we need healing. So it's, it's something that often we can just choose not to confess. Yet throughout the scripture, we see this very consistent theme. That confession is good for you. It's not just something we should do because God demands it. Because a holy God says, you must confess. Bow down, sinners. But confession is actually good for us. The, uh, the writer of Proverbs says it this way. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper... But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So here the writer of Proverbs is saying, if you're not confessing, you're not growing in your faith. Isn't that interesting? You're not going to prosper in your faith. Because confession leads to growth, which leads to grace. So if we're not confessing our sins, if we're not aware of our sins... We're just blindly walking through faith. We're not, we don't have any sense of receiving God's goodness and mercy. If we're not confessing, God's grace and mercy will always just be a concept, a good idea, but it won't be something we experience. 
we will not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces will find mercy. So today we're going to talk a little bit about how we can engage in confession in our lives. And we're going to learn from uh, our ancient examples of the people of Israel in Jerusalem about this. And we're going to learn firstly about why we should confess, which seems obvious, but I think when we think about it, you know, it could be not as obvious. And then how we can confess, how, the, how we learn from the people of Israel in Jerusalem about how we can come to God and what is a helpful way for us to confess. So we're firstly going to look at why we should confess. And in the example in our passage, we see that that answer could be not as immediately clear. You know, usually we think, well, why should I confess? Well, because I did wrong. That's why I should confess. But here in our passage, we see that that kind of statement is not right at the forefront. In our passage, uh, one of the longest prayers of confession in the whole Bible, we see that the passage starts out this way. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. And so that is very different than most prayers of confession that we pray. Most time we're like, oh, God, help me. Oh, God, I did wrong. I know what God, I did that. But here we have about 28 verses of the people of God just praising God. Just saying, God, you are awesome, you know everything, you are good, you created it all. And then talking about the people of Israel and how he created the people, how he's worked through them, even despite their sin, how he is present with them. So through this, we see, and in the end it says, you know, despite all the people did, great is your mercy. You did not put an end to them or abandon them, but you are gracious and merciful God. So through this long prayer, which I, you know, would take us another 20 minutes to recite the whole thing. Through this long prayer, we learn two things about God and sin and confession. The first thing we learn is that God knows our sin before we confess. I don't know, sometimes we think that if we don't confess to God, we're kind of hiding from God. That we don't have, you know, God's, God doesn't know if we're not telling him. But... Our passage reminds us very clearly that God knows everything about us. He created it all. He created us. He created the world. He knows every little thing. So God knows our sin before we confess it. So trying to hide it from him, like we see Adam and Eve doing in the garden, is fruitless because God knows it. He knew it as you were doing it. He saw it. He saw everything that you've ever done. And also, God redeems our sin before we confess it. There's sometimes a problem I think that we can have in faith, and I had this when I was younger in my faith, saying that God is not loving me if I don't confess. That God is not blessing me if I don't confess. So I kind of have this like constantly, okay, God, I did this wrong. Okay, God, forgive me, please. Please, God, forgive me. Okay, I did this other thing wrong. Oh, God, please forgive me. And over and over again, that I felt like if I missed one of those things, God's not loving me. He's not with me. But we see clearly here, that God forgives and redeems even despite their lack of confession. The Israelites we see throughout this whole long prayer, they're not faithful, they're not listening, they're arrogant, they're doing their own thing. But despite of that, God works. It says in verse 33, 
in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. And so we see this in the passage that they are confessing that, wow, God is loving and forgiving despite our confession. And we see that clearly in Jesus Christ as well. We talked last week about the Day of Atonement. If you weren't here, that's the day once a year in the ancient life of Israel that God would forgive all sins. That the the priest would bring a spotless lamb to be sacrificed in the temple. And that would cover all the people's sins for that year. For that, that day they would be fully forgiven. They would start singing again after that. But for that moment they were forgiven. But in Jesus Christ we see that he, the day of atonement that he brought on the cross on Good Friday was not for one people at one time, but for all people for all times. So that means if you come to Christ and you confess and you ask him to be your Lord and Savior, you are completely and fully forgiven, not just once, but for all. So you'll go back and sin, but you are not sin. That is not your identity. That is not your destiny. You are saved from sin and death and the devil. And so, even before we daily confess our sins, if we forget our sins, if we don't acknowledge our sins, if we're not remembering or choosing not to remember, still, it does not change Jesus Christ's forgiveness and his atonement of you at all if you have come to him and and given your life to him. So, we see That God knows our sin before we confess, and God redeems us of our sin before we confess. So then why should we confess? Why is it important if God redeems it already? So we're just telling him something he already knows as well. You know, confessing your sin, naming your sin, is just telling him what he already knows and what he already forgave. So then why do we do it? The answer is at the end of this prayer. We see the first 30 verses of the prayer, 29 verses or so, are all about God, what God does, what God has been doing. And then the last part of the prayer, the last eight, nine verses, are about the people's response. And the people say this. They say, but see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins... Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. So in one sense, the people of Israel here are acknowledging that they are still physically slaves. That even though God through Moses freed them from slavery in Egypt, they've gone back to slavery by their own actions or inaction. They are still under a ruler, the Persian Government. They're still not able to have their own land and their own, you know, see the fruit of their labors. But also they're saying that they're spiritual slaves here. They've followed other gods, gone to other ways, and they need help and change. So what they're saying is, though, even though God forgives before they confess, even though God um, knows before they confess, they still need to confess because they're slaves. God has taken the chains off, but they still wear the chains. God has opened the prison door and said, come on out, and they decided to stay in. And so confession is a way of coming out of the prison cell. It's a way of taking those chains off. It's a way of acknowledging 
them so that we can receive freedom. James wrote in his epistle, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now that's a different way of understanding confession, isn't it? I mean, this, and he's talking about confessing to each other. Just think about our own life of confession with God alone. Confession is often this shameful thing. It's often this, oh, we only do it if we have to. It's easy to forget. We don't want to remember. But here, James is saying, and also the writer of Proverbs was saying, that confession is not about shame, but it's about healing. It's a way that God heals us. When we take the time to name our sin, to really say what is going on in our life, that is the place God begins to heal us. Because when we begin to name our sin and understand it, then we can repent of it. Then we can receive God's grace and mercy and love in the midst of it. So we're called to confess because we're slaves. We're freed slaves, but we're still in bondage. And we need healing. And part of the daily journey of confession is little by little letting God heal us as we name our sin. So then the question for us is, how do we confess well? How do we do it well? Because there are certain ways of confession that will be more helpful than others. There are ways that we can confess that are not as helpful to our healing. Saying something just general like, yeah, God, I sinned. Everybody sins, you know. I, I've done it too, you know. Yeah, we all do it. That, it's, that's true. It's a statement of truth. But it may not be as helpful in your life with Christ because you didn't name your sin. You didn't expose anything. You didn't challenge anything in your life. You just acknowledge something that is generally true. Among most people, I think, in, in our lives, in our culture, there is this desire to maintain a sense of goodness. Like uh, uh, Craig Barnes called it a constructed identity. We build this identity up, we're good, everything's all right, we're good people, we're respectable people, you know, uh, look at us, we're, we're, we're just fine, nothing's wrong with us. And it takes a lot of time and energy to develop that, to keep that going, that kind of constructed identity. And so when we come to confession, confession is dangerous to that constructed identity because if we confess our sins honestly and realistically and sincerely and seriously, it's going to break down that constructed identity because we're going to realize that we can't do it ourselves. That my own sense of building up my goodness and, and this whole life that makes me look like a good person, a successful person, a respectable person, uh, a person worthy of love, is always going to fall down. It's a, it's a house of cards. One little thing can break it down. So when we confess, it breaks that illusion that we're okay, we have no needs, we're all right, nothing's wrong with us. And it actually delves us deeper into God's grace because we realize we need him. We need love. We need his help. We need his care. And so in our passage, we see a few ways that the people of Israel teach us about what is helpful confession. And the first one is that confession needs to be sincere. It needs to be sincere. We read in uh, the first passage that we talked about earlier, that the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting on dust on their heads. 
So basically what that would mean is they would take like a, a burlap sack, you know, rough fiber or fabric, and they put it on, and then they put dust over their heads. And the, way they, the reason why they did this, it was a sign of mourning and grieving death. That's basically what it was. When you grieved over someone who had died, you would do this as a sign of, of grieving and also as a sign of humility. It was a sign of going dust I, to dust I became, I came from, and to dust I will return. And the idea of the sackcloth is that no matter what riches you have or what things you bring or what success you have, all that's going to be gone. And one day you're going to just be, all you have might be a sackcloth one day. And so they came this way to intentionally say, our sins are bad and wrong. They are severe. And not just their sins as people, but their sins as a people. They look back on their history and say, we did wrong. We destroyed our nation with our idolatry and our arrogance and our lack of listening to God and his word. So this was a very serious thing for them. And so it was important that they took it sincerely. They sincerely confessed. And so that's important for us as well. I mean, sometimes we may need to do some pre-confession work before we come to confession. We need to remember the seriousness of sin. We need to remember our need for God. We need to remember that we are slaves and then come sincerely to confess. And then secondly, we read that their confession was specific. They had specific sins to atone for. We read in our passage that those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. So, we might wonder, why did they do this? I mean, there are other tribes that weren't Israelites there, so why did they have to separate themselves? It wasn't a sign of discrimination or anything like that. But it was because the Israelites specifically had specific sins to atone for. They had unfinished business with God. So they specifically came together to confess their disobedience, their forgetfulness, their arrogance. Um, Remember their denial of the uh, amazing loving works of God and the blasphemy they committed by worshiping other gods. They had specific sins to confess to God, and also we have specific sins to confess to God. And our confession will not be as helpful to us if we're not intentional about the specificity of what happened. And that's where this whole idea of forgetfulness comes in. Because often, as I just mentioned earlier, we tend to want to forget these things. Sin thrives in darkness. Sin wants to stay in the dark in our lives. It doesn't want to be exposed. Confession turns the light on to our sin and says, yes, this is what happened. But we like to keep it in the dark. So that's why confession is a daily discipline of naming sins. I don't know if you've ever done this. I encourage you to do this one day. At the end of the day, get out a pad, a pencil, and paper, and write down two things. Firstly, write down, what were the sins I committed? What were the sins of omission, things I didn't do? What were the sins of commission, things I did do? And just write those down. And then write down, where did I experience the love and grace of God? And just write those things down. And I, I will uh, guarantee you that if you do that every day for a week, 
you will be very aware of both your need for God and also the amazing grace of God and how awesomely wonderful he is in the midst of your sin and how graciously is healing you and how uh, wonderfully he is working in your life and how over and over again he reminds you of who he is. Just encourage you to take that time just to discuss the seriousness of your sin. Because if we're not specific of our sin, again, we're not going to be aware of God's grace. You know, one of the most dangerous places, I think, can be the church. If the church is filled with people who are not confessing their sins and receiving the grace of God, the church can be a dangerous place because it's going to be a judgmental place. It's going to be an inauthentic place. It's going to be a petty place. If we're not confessing sins, if we're not coming before God and receiving his grace, this can be a dangerous place to people and a dangerous place to us. And so we're called again to be authentically here and authentically in our faith, which means um, confessing regularly. And lastly, we're just called to take our faith seriously. Firstly, called to take the severity of our faith seriously, but also to take the grace of God seriously. Again, confession often has this bad kind of context in our lives. But confession is an amazing, amazing healing blessing in your life. Frederick Buechner describes it this way. He says, To confess your sins to God is to not tell God anything he doesn't know. Until you confess them, however... They are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the bridge. So I encourage you to see confession this way. That's how we see the ancient Jerusalemites saw confession. That it was the bridge. You know, when we sin, I I know you've experienced this, and I definitely experienced this. That when we begin to sin and not kind of be aware of our sin... The first things that goes are studying scripture, praying, church, small groups. Anything that will expose our sin, we avoid. But exposing our sin and confessing our sin is a graceful act where God says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you have no need of rest... You will never come at that invitation. But if you are weary of your sin, if you are burdened and distressed as the people of Jerusalem were, you will come and receive that invitation and be blessed. So I encourage you to come, to take seriously your sin, to be sincere in your confession and to be specific as you come to our Lord. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you that you are good, that your love endures forever. We thank you, Lord, that you are, you know our sin before we confess, that you know our, you've redeemed our sin before we ask. We thank you, Lord. We ask, Lord, that as we take of this bread and this cup, that you would remind us of your good mercy and your good grace, so that we might uh, be called again to confess and to be joyful and to go out and practice. Thank you, God. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took a cup and he poured wine into it and he said, This is the blood of the new covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the coming and the salvation and the ascension and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. I encourage you as you take this bread and this cup to, uh, to confess, to think about what ways that have created barriers in your life with God this week and to, as you are waiting to partake of the Lord's Supper, to just confess them to God. Maybe hard, hardness of heart. It may be a lack of forgiveness. It may be um, a lack of care towards somebody else. It may just be an attitude or a motivation that you've had that you know is not God's way. That God has a different way, but you've not allowed God into that, that circumstance. I encourage you to allow him in through confession as you receive the meal today. This is the gift of God for the people of God. So I encourage uh, the elders to come forward and also to receive this in grace.